This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. no opening sponsor for this episode of In the Arena. Instead, I want to send you to one of my sites to give you a free resource. The Model Sales Week is a nine-part video series that you can get for free by going to themodelsalesweek.com. And there you're going to find a link. You can give us your email address and your first name, and we will send you immediately to those nine videos where you can watch some of my best ideas about how to be truly productive as a salesperson. So go to themodelsalesweek.com and sign up and get the nine-part video series immediately. There's no uh, drip. It's not going to come email after email. You go immediately. You get all the content. I hope you enjoy it. Send me a note. Go to thesalesblog.com. Go to the contact page. Send me a note. Let me know how you're doing with that content, and I hope you enjoy it. Many years ago, I read a book called Boyd by a gentleman named Robert Corum, and it's the story of U.S. Air Force Colonel John Boyd, and it describes Boyd's life, also his contribution to fighter jets in the U.S. Air Force, where he spent most of his life. But more than that, what Boyd discovered was a form of thinking about strategy. So I would describe him as the American Sun Tzu. One of the people who helped Boyd with his work was a man named Chet Richards. And Chet lives in Atlanta or did at the time when I met him. And I had read Boyd's work and I needed help understanding it. And I called Chet and I asked Chet to give me a course in understanding OODA loops and Boyd's thinking on strategy a lot of it coming out of a paper that Chet had helped him with called Destruction and Creation, which is easy to read and hard to understand. Chet's book is called Certain to Win, and it's a masterwork in strategic thinking. And if you are in a competitive business and you need to think about strategy, this book will do more to take Boyd's work and give it to you in some sort of an actionable format than just about anything else. I invited Chet on so that I could ask him questions about Boyd, questions about destruction and creation, questions about strategy, questions about OODA loop, and questions about mismatches where someone who appears to be weaker, smaller, and with fewer resources beats a larger, well-organized, well-resourced opponent. This is Chet Richards in the arena. Good morning, Chet. How are you? I'm fine, Anthony. Good morning to you. It's good to see you. I haven't seen you for a long time. And the last time, I think we were eating a vegetarian dish at a restaurant in Atlanta or somewhere. I believe that's right. Thailand, as I recall. Yeah. It was good. And I remember being more spicy than I anticipated. (laughs) I was saying that. I was hoping you wouldn't notice the tears streaming down my eyes. This podcast, I want to focus in on John Boyd's work and your work in Certain to Win and the application of strategy to business. But I want to start by asking you a question. You're the best positioned person on earth to answer this question, I think. Who was John Boyd? And then if you could also share, what were you doing when you met him? 
Sure. Gosh, there's so many ways to answer that. I, of course, I would refer your listeners to Robert Coram's wonderful biography, Boyd the Fighter Pilot to Change the Art of War. I participated in that as a reader. Robert would meet my wife, Ginger, and myself at the bar at Peachtree DeKalb Airport, which is about halfway between our houses. And at some point in time, he would exchange drafts. And then we would go home and read it and then come back and for the price of a beer, give him our comments and continue on. And this went on for about a year and a half. I will point out to your readers that everything that's in that book was was checked and double checked. Robert was extremely careful. So even things that may seem a little odd, such as John's association with Vice President Cheney, it absolutely happened just the way that he put it down. But yeah, he was kind of an interesting guy. He was your typical, in a sense, mid-50s, early 60s, career-oriented, driven husband who was out doing his thing and expected the the wife, his saintly wife, Mary, to basically keep the household together while he was doing it. In a sense, he was maybe a little bit like Pat Conroy's father, Donald Conroy, the great Santini, but without the physical violence. I don't think there's ever been any indication that he was ever physically violent with his family, but he could certainly push him very, very hard, and which came across to a lot of people as being almost abusive to them. So if you figure that he was like it, he was totally focused on advancing the state of American fighter aviation. That was basically the only thing he thought about from you know, the time he got up to the time he went to bed. He probably dreamed about it, too. It's always interesting to hear you talk about Boyd because almost every conversation, there's almost anything you wanted has at least the price of a beer and probably multiple beers. He was a fighter pilot, what can I tell you? <laughs> the planes ran on jet fuel and the pilots ran on beer, so... That's funny. What were you doing when you met him? I was a very young staffer in the office of the Secretary of Defense. I had uh, I graduated in 1971 with degrees in math, and it was in the middle of a recession, and there were virtually no jobs out there. I had had a two-year ROTC commitment, which the Army basically waived. In fact, they said, don't come. We'll send you on active duty for 90 days and then go home. And so I did this mad scramble to find a job. And the only offer that I got was from the Office of the Secretary of Defense and a thing called the Management Intern Program. I had no clue what either one of those two were, but it did pay. It paid real money. And, and furthermore, it was the only offer that I had. So uh, Ginger and I moved to Washington. And what it involved was rotating around the various offices in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. And then after a year, getting a permanent position. And the permanent position I ended up in was in the TAC Air Shop, which is the Office of Tactical Aviation, in what at that time was still known as the Office of Systems Analysis, the, the last uh, glory days of McNamara's WizKids. It shortly got its name changed to PAD, the Office of Programs Analysis and Evaluation, and got downgraded quite a bit. But at that time, they were still doing analysis to try to advise the Secretary of Defense. Um, well, for example, if you have the Army wants a new tank, the Air Force wants a new fighter, and and the Navy wants a new submarine, and there's nominally maybe enough money for two of those, which way should he go? Can the Navy live with a cheaper submarine and Air Force get what they want? Or does the Navy get what it wants? The Air Force lives with the fighter that it has and buy a new tank for the Army or whatever. Those were the kind of trade-offs that we were looking at. And so at Attack Air, we were looking at things. The Air Force had, had started the F-15 program. They were looking at kill ratios of as high as, I think, at one point, 2,000 to 1 
which we pointed out was really great. That meant we only needed to buy about 100 to defeat the entire Soviet Union. That briefing, by the way, quickly got withdrawn, but it still told me something. The guys wearing lots of stars on their chest would give that briefing with a straight face without thinking through the implications. But anyway, those are the sorts of things we did. We basically advised the Secretary of Defense. Well, it turns out that one of the tools we used was a thing called energy maneuverability, which had been thought up by a guy named John Boyd and his friend Tom Christie down in Eglin. And while I was there, Boyd was still running an Air Force R&D shop in the Pentagon. So just before he went over to Thailand, the head of the office at that time, Paul Berenson, took us over to meet the great John Boyd. And I can remember him standing up in his fighter's pilot's uniform. And he was almost jolly, you know, because kind of knew he was among friends there. We were actively pushing the McCain, the F-16, and we were using his theories to do it, the energy maneuverability approach. We were only there for a few minutes. Be impressed with. He was big, tall, stood upright, just had the fighter pilot attitude. He went off to Thailand. I left the office of the Secretary of Defense, moved out to California for a while. And it wasn't until after he retired in, I think it was August of 1975, and started working for Commerce Christie. I moved back to the D.C. area in uh, back in 78, 79, trying to think. Actually, moved back in 80. But he contacted me in 75 while I was still in the D.C. area right after he had retired and wanted to know if I could look over some stuff he was doing for, for a paper using an obscure uh, theorem for mathematics. It wasn't the branch of math that I had specialized in, but all mathematicians are familiar with Kurt Gödel. So I read it over. He wasn't doing a mathematical proof. He was just using some of the ideas. From, I'm told from a mathematical standpoint, it was fine because it basically wasn't any. And I really wasn't in a position to comment on the rest of it. I knew very little about Heisenberg or the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, it had a little physics. But I told him, yeah, I mean, you quoted the theorem right. Your applications are not mathematical in nature, so I really can't comment on it, but I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, that's all he wanted to hear. That plus the fact that I didn't send him a bill, other than, of course, he did by beer at happy hour. But <laughs> so then I went off to Saudi Arabia for a while and we eventually moved back to the D.C. area in 1980. And I got into the Wednesday happy hour scene. And that's really when I started associating with him a little more closely. A Patterns of Conflict wasn't, quote, finished for another six years, but it was pretty much in the form that it would eventually wind up with. So listeners aren't going to know this. And I, I think let me just try to give a little bit of context. So Boyd is a fighter pilot. He decides to go and get an education. He starts studying math and he starts studying physics. And what his his main beef in Quorum's book, his main beef with the Air Force is that they're trying to create these planes that he would call gold-plated. So there's mm -hmm. ladders, there's all these things. And what he wants is a rocket with a lawn chair and missiles and guns on the front of it that can turn faster. And a big way. He's trying to figure out how to use that math to win the conflict in the air by fixing the plane's maneuverability. Because at some point in a plane and with all of his education, he understands that the ability to get inside somebody else's turn radius is going to give you a competitive advantage in getting behind somebody. And his, his reputation was 42nd Boyd, right? He was already a great fighter pilot and already had figured out how to get behind somebody very, very quickly in a fighter jet. So now he's coming to you and he's saying, I need to verify this math because he's trying to find a way to fix what's broken in the United States Air Force with these big planes that aren't going to do what he thinks in his mind should be done in the air, right? It's more about the maneuverability than all of the other bells and whistles that they're putting on planes because we have the technological capability to do it. 
That's basically correct. You may remember in the movie, The Right Stuff, it starts out with Dennis Quaid driving to California and he, he's telling his wife, I'm going out to Edwards. And there they fly higher, farther and faster than anywhere else in the world. That was what the Air Force was doing when John Boyd arrived, higher, farther, faster. If you lived through that period, you remember you were looking for the record, speed record for the next airplane. The next Air Force airplane was supposed to fly higher and fly faster, Mach 2, Mach 2.5, Mach 3, whatever. What Boyd had found out at Nellis as an instructor pilot was that all this higher, farther, faster didn't actually help you win when time came to fighting. The Air Force said, don't worry, we've got missiles, but they were having a hard time making the missiles work, particularly at that speed. What did seem to work was, as you said, an airplane that could turn tighter than its opponent and hold that tight turn longer seemed like it could get inside the other side's turning radius and eventually get on its tail and shoot him out of the sky. To shoot somebody out of the sky, you basically had to get behind him and open up with machine guns, just like World War II. He was the first person to actually quantify how to do that with the energy maneuverability theory that I told you about. A whole bunch of equations, lots of graphs, but you could very quickly lay the graph of one airplane on top of the other airplane and see which one was, was better. And not only which one was better, but where it was better. So where I had to take the combat in order to defeat you. And it was a revolution. Nobody had ever quantified this. Until then, fighter education had been rules of thumb. People had and kept kind of close to their chest and taught to their students. If the other guy does this, I do that. But nobody really knew why. And it didn't always work every time. So he quantified it. Based on his quantifying, the way the Air Force was going was not going to work. They were going even higher and farther and faster than they were going before. And what John said is the airplanes are getting more expensive to make it do that. And furthermore, when they're short in combat, they don't work. And this was very, very shortly verified by the Vietnam War. Do you lose the maneuverability by making a plane that goes higher, further, faster? At that time, you did, because to make an airplane go faster, there's a thing called a fineness ratio. It's, it works for boats, too. It basically said if you make it long, then it has less drag. The same airplane with the same amount of thrust that's shorter will have more overall drag and won't go as fast. Also, big wings made it not go as fast because more lift means more drag. These are aerodynamic equations that are as true today as they were when the Wright brothers first, first took off. There are things we can do today to help overcome that. The F-15 is not a particularly long, thin airplane. In other words, it doesn't look like the SR-71, which is a long, thin, or the Concorde, which is a long, thin airplane. But back then, yeah, that was basically what you had to do. So to make it go higher, farther, faster also made it less maneuverable. And it made it a lot more expensive because you needed exotic materials that could handle the stress and the heat. And these exotic materials included really thick glass for the pilot to see out of, which means that he really couldn't see very much, which was okay if you weren't planning to maneuver. But what we were finding was all this stuff aside, going making a high-speed pass and going zooming past somebody didn't really buy very much in real combat particularly if you were going so much faster. Well, this was very, very strange because in World War I, that's exactly how you fought. You got up high, you zoomed down, you took a shot at somebody and you tried to get away. But the differences in speed were 50, 60 miles an hour. You could see what you were doing. There was no cockpit. Your head was sticking out. By the time of Boyd's time, you were trapped inside this cockpit. You couldn't see anything. You had closing uh, speeds that would have been hundreds of miles an hour. It just didn't work. You're making these high-speed passes and you're not having any uh, effect. Again, Vietnam, very shortly after Boyd did his work, proved exactly what he and maneuverability people were saying. So he had this thing called energy maneuverability, and that's we were using that in the Office of the Secretary of Defense to argue for more maneuverable airplanes than even the F-15, which Boyd had been very heavily involved in, but it only got him about halfway from the higher, farther, faster down to the highly maneuverable. 
it was still a Mach 2.5 airplane, at least in theory. It could do Mach 2.5, but it had to use so much fuel getting there because it had to have afterburners, which are basically rockets on the back of the jet engine, to push it for a very short period of time, very fast. And then, lo and behold, when you got out there, you couldn't do anything. So the next step was to come up with an airplane that had a high-speed dash capability, but was highly maneuverable, and that was the F-16. And it's still in production today, and it's the airplane that's my most closely associated with Boyd. Although Boyd is quite legitimately called the father of both the F-15 and the F-16 and the F-18, incidentally, which was also in the lightweight fighter competition. And to a lesser extent, perhaps even the F-22 and F-35 today. It's interesting because the maneuverability brings us to a pivot point in this conversation because what Boyd's insight was, was not only applied to a fighter jet and other people started to recognize that what Boyd had really done was discovered something about strategy and about competition and about winning. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about this. There's a relationship to business strategy and strategy when it comes to warfare. And that is the beginning of your book, Certain to Win. So I want to ask you to talk about the relationship of business strategy to warfare so that we can try to start bridging what Boyd's insight was and then start walking people down that path. So there's a lot of differences between warfare and business, but there's also a lot of similarities. What makes warfare worth studying when you're thinking about strategy, competition, competitive advantage, and winning? Very interesting question. It turned out in the very, very, very first briefing that Boyd ever published, which was a deliverable, a little contract he had with NASA, the punchline, the final line was, he who can handle the fastest rate of change survives. And that's essentially Boyd's strategy in a nutshell for dealing with somebody that you're going head to head with. He didn't define what fastest rate of change meant, but clearly you can see the flavor of maneuverability in there. Mm -hmm. And he didn't decide what handle meant, but clearly you can see the mental aspect now beginning to come into it. You can see things how not becoming disoriented now starting to enter into it. These are things that obviously apply to business, too. He didn't say fastest rate of change in what. He actually changed his own thinking quite radically on that between the time that paper came out and the time that he quit thinking about uh, these subjects about 10 years later. And that's a subject that's a little bit technical. It probably wouldn't get your readers too uh, excited other than to say that the human brain can handle fast rates of change in a linear way very, very easily. Our brains can easily extrapolate out where something is going as long as it's going in a straight line. Once it begins to move in a curved path, it gets a little more difficult. And the reason, oddly enough, appears to have something to do with the fact that we're trying to simulate what it's doing in our own brains. And that involves the same nerves that interpret signals from our inner ear. And you know that if you get too many Gs in your inner ear, everything just goes to hell. That effect seems to affect everything. Things start changing the way they change too rapidly, our minds just can't handle it. Is that the difference between, are you saying that if we look at it through a lens of linear change, it's easy for us to perceive as humans. But if you're talking about exponential change, the difficulty in understanding the exponential curve is more difficult to see and orient to. Exactly. And it becomes even worse than that. A lot of people can extrapolate out that curve to some extent. However, when you start getting even more than that, when you start getting jerky type behavior, and boy, I'd love that word, by the way, most people's ability to handle that just, just goes away. And what's worse, they begin to show all of the symptoms of panic 
a rapid breath, the blood pressure goes up, pulse rate goes up, they become disoriented, they bounce from one alternative to another very quickly, all those kinds of things, when the rate of change gets too rapid. And that effect happens in business just as it happens in, in the martial arts or anything else. So economic challenges, technological challenges, cultural challenges, political challenges. So all these stacking on top of us in a business environment, very much we could describe as mimicking warfare. Oh, absolutely. The inputs are so great and so stressful that you're disoriented, making it difficult to cope with the massive amount of change. That's exactly right. And it's how quickly the change is coming at you that's important. Now, what's interesting in this is in the war side, if it's just you against me, say in martial arts, then the actual time scale is is very important. For example, if it takes you a half to three quarters of a second to see what I'm doing and begin to react to it, then if I can react just a little bit faster than that, say in a half a second, so that you're now reacting to something that I was doing before, but not what I'm doing now, you'll see this effect very, very quickly. You'll see frustration, panic. Think of any time when you've gotten overloaded at work. The phone starts to ring and somebody rushes in with this has got to be done right. His plane comes in and says, hey, I've got a problem with this problem. You just want to scream at him, stop, <laughs> press the timeout. But well, the boy said there are no timeouts in war. That's a wonderful effect. That's the position you want to put your opponent into. To where things are happening so quickly, they get overloaded, and the cohesion that holds the group together becomes destroyed by this mad bull kind of behavior. We're going to get into unit cohesion and the principles of Blitzkrieg and what we got from the Prussians. But before we get there, I want to ask you to explain Lanchester's model to me and, and an application of business, if you can. Can you describe that? Well, I can give it a shot. But before I do, remind me to come back to this time thing because okay. it's important. It does not work at all that way. It, it works, but it works totally differently in business. Frederick William Lanchester was looking at a World War I aviation. And what he was trying to do was predict basically the effects of numbers. And he was looking at the question of should you spend more money for a more powerful or a, a more expensive, but say better armed airplane or buy more of a cheaper but less well-armed type airplane. Say it has four machine guns rather than two, but because it has four, you have to reinforce the wing, put on a bigger engine, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Whereas you can buy two airplanes with two engines or maybe one and a half with two uh, machine guns or one with four. So he basically ran the numbers and he did it as if it were a Civil War skirmish line. He said, let's say I have 100 cheap airplanes and you have 50 expensive airplanes. And my cheap airplanes, let's say each one of mine can take out a half of one of your airplanes. So basically, if I have 50 of my airplanes, half of them miss, half of them hit. So I would take out this, this analogy is going to break down because I didn't give you enough airplanes. I'll give you 100 on both sides to make it even. You'll win that. Anyway, my 50 take out now 50 of yours. Your 50 are one to one. They take out 50 of mine. So now we, we each have 50 left. So we play the game again. And each time, drawing down, you know, a treating of the number of airplanes that we have. And the question was that who runs out of airplanes first? And the answer, it turns out, is given by a very simple formula. You take the effectiveness, call it E, of the airplanes that you have times the square of the number of airplanes you have, and that is your Lanchester effectiveness coefficient. So if I have... 10 airplanes of an effectiveness of one, that gives me a Lanchester coefficient of 100, one times 10 squared. If you have an effectiveness of two, then you would think, well, maybe I can get by with half as many, but half as many would be five squared is 25 times two is 50. 
So my Lanchester coefficient was 100. Yours is only 50. You're going to get it treated first. And it's going to go very, very quickly, by the way. And so- Did I have the better is, airplane in that equation? Yeah. You can have the better airplane, but you've got to be a lot better, a whole bunch better than the number that I have because numbers are going to get squared. So if I have twice as many airplanes, you need to be four times as good, basically, to even everything else. So this, I'm going to try to tie this together with culture and how smaller, poorly equipped organizations beat larger, well-equipped. Mm-hmm. So basically what we're talking about is the difference between efficiency and effectiveness at some level. The, hmm, I hadn't thought of it that way. The more I need to be way more effective and not just a little bit more effective, but far more effective. If you're going to play the Lanchester game, you have to be way more effective. To overcome a two-to-one deficit, you have to be four times. To overcome a three-to-one, you'd have to be nine times. Let's hold that because I want you to finish the time when it comes to business as compared to warfare. But then I want to start coming back to this idea about what Lanchester's model describes and what it means for smaller forces. Hmm. All right. Well, look at it like this. Look at, for example, Apple's introduction of the original iPod back in right after 2001. I think it came in October 2001, just after the attack on the Twin Towers. They brought one model out. As I recall, it was initially available just in one storage size, like five gig, and and then became an option for 10, or it may have been five and 10 immediately. It was just that one model. It was a solid year before they came out with the next version of it, as I, which I recall has a slightly different wheel on the front of it. It was a, another whole year before it came out with the next model. And then shortly after that, they introduced the iPod Mini. And then after that, all of a sudden, you got this branching out of iPod models, which if you consider the iPhone as an iPod, continues to, to this day. But for more than two years, they only had one model and they only renewed it on an annual basis. And you say, well, wouldn't it have been some advantage to them if they had been able to renew it on a nine-month or an eight-month or a six-month or something like that basis? Hard to make that argument. Because for one thing, once they got in this annual cycle, nobody really cared what Samsung or anybody else came out with. At that time, their competitors were people like uh, Ario with the Cali and things like that. Things they don't even have never even heard of anymore. They were a lot cheaper, but they, for a whole variety of reasons, they weren't able to compete with the iPod. But the other thing is when people knew that Apple was going to introduce a new one in September, that became the defining event. So this points out the difference in topology between one versus one competition or even one side versus one side like war and something like business where it doesn't really make any difference what I do to you as a competitor. We look to the customer essentially, and the customer gives a thumbs up or thumbs down. And I could do things, too, that war would be considered quite legitimate. But if it torques the customer off, the customer thinks I'm treating you unfairly or I'm denying the customer options, uh, for example, freezing you out of the market or things like that, it could actually have the opposite effect. And so there is a important role for time, but it's certainly not just whoever introduces models more quickly wins. Much, much more complex once you throw the customer into the equation. That was the point that I wanted to make. So you you have to develop a deep understanding of what it means for your industry and your business. So the the battle being fought in a business sense is for the customer. And so ultimately, if it doesn't get the necessary effect on the customer, 
It doesn't really matter what you do. Right. And the Germans have a wonderful word for this, Fingerspitzengefühl, which means that you, as the business owner, have got to have a feeling for how all this is going to play with the customer. When is the right time to introduce to have the maximum effect? If you introduce too early, you, you might run into the vaporware problem. Or you might introduce buggy software, for example, or, or buggy apps that actually open up opportunities for your uh, competitors. This is why you, know, you can't do any kind of a formula and why you can't just say, well, faster is better at war, therefore faster is better in business. Doing what you intend to do at the time you intend to do it is probably a better way to say it. And once you intend to do something, then make it happen at that time is, uh, is probably a better way to say it. Let's start weaving this in. So I want to talk about two things to sort of get us into a conversation about the intangibles that seem to weigh into making somebody massively more effective and sort of, I want to say, bending the Lanchester curve in their direction, you know, mm -hmm. that, that competitive advantage from effectiveness. So one, I want to talk about agility. And, and ultimately, I think about maneuverability from your work, particularly in Certain to Win, as being one of these critical components about maneuverability. And it's not just maneuverability now in an airplane, it's maneuverability as an organization. So this uh, organizational agility. And if you could, there's one chart that I use in a slide deck that I deliver to customers that I took out of your book, and it's the chart of the battles throughout history, the well-known battles. You're smiling oh, already because yeah. this is yeah. such a great chart yeah. where, where the smaller, poorly equipped, I mean, on any paper that you were to look at to say, which side's going to win? You're going to choose the larger one because of the, the manpower, the money, the equipment, everything is better. And yet the smaller side wins. And even going back to here in the United States, our American Revolution, I mean, a much smaller, much poorly equipped and has no business even being in the fight because of certain attributes they get there. So how how does agility play into that and how do smaller, poorly equipped competitors beat larger, better equipped, better financed companies? OK, let's go back to the Lanchester law. If you stop and think about it in the Lanchester if I have, I have my guys, say I have a hundred for my, for the number of people I have. Every one of mine has got to be able to engage every one of yours. And then the kill ratios in there, uh, let's say 0.25 says that, okay, for every four guys of mine that are firing, I kill one of yours. And if you stop and think about it, I'm modeling a civil war skirmish line. Every weapon on my side can engage every weapon on your side and the coefficients tell how good they are. Same thing going the other way. And then the ones that, that get killed. And I, you know, I hate using these military type terms, but you know, when you're, you're talking you're, military, you're setting up a picture though. In, in, exactly. in, in the time of the revolutionary war, though, people lined up on both sides with guns and pointed they at did. each other. They did if they were the continental army. However, you make right. a strong case. The American revolution was not won by the continental army. It was won by actions, for example, down here in the South, the Southern strategy, remember, which I think it was how decided on was completely destroyed primarily by the militias and the local people in this area that formed up, some of them into semi-regular units, but most of them uh, into guerrillas and just made life hell for the uh, British. The movie The Patriot is not terribly accurate, but it does show the frustration the Brits were in down here. And it battles like Kings Mountain and the Calpins. Calpins did have some regular forces, of course, under Daniel Morgan. But the thing that won that battle was Morgan's ability to use the militia as a highly agile force and attacking at an unexpected time and place. It's a fascinating battlefield. I recommend highly to your to your listeners to come down and see it. But that made life so so hard down here that the British started to withdraw that led from the Calpins to go for 
Oxford's courthouse and eventually all the way back to Yorktown, where it was the French fleet that primarily sealed that uh, battle. I'm not I'm not denigrating Washington in any way. He was a brilliant leader and uh, you know extremely brave and very well educated. But there just weren't enough continental forces to win. So it was it was a nice combination. Same thing with Wellington against Napoleon's forces in the peninsula. Wellington had these lined up forces and all that, but he couldn't have won that without the Spanish guerrillas. So it was a combination of the two. And that gets into agility. Agility is really the ability to understand what's going on so well that you see that it's time to do something different. In fact, that's how Boyd eventually ended up defining it. The flip side of that is and are able to actually carry out what you want to do. So I define it as being it's the ability to be able to change the situation more rapidly than the other side can understand. Not more rapidly than the other side can react, but actually understand and therefore figure out what to do about it. If you stop and think about it, that's what Apple did, even with that one year, you know, very lockstep one year update cycles, which basically they still do. Of course, you know, they introduced new products to WWDC and then again in the fall and whatever that that is. You know, that's, and a number of cases where Samsung has come out with brilliant or, or Microsoft brilliant hardware. But people have said, before you buy, wait and see what Apple comes up with. And they do. And they, uh, uh, to come back, though, to the original question, Lanchester models a Civil War skirmish line. So the way you defeat that is don't play that game. A line, as it turns out, if you study history, is very vulnerable to one of a couple of things. The most obvious is going around the flanks. Because if you're lined up shoulder to shoulder facing the enemy and the enemy gets around behind you, the line just collapses. That's been true ever since we've known anything about warfare. That's why protecting your flanks was so important to these linear strategists. The other thing you can do is create a lot of confusion. And while that confusion is going off, punch a little hole through anywhere in the line. It doesn't make any difference where it is. And start feeding troops into that hole. It'll have exactly the same effect. The line will start to collapse. And once it starts to collapse, panic breaks out and the whole line just disintegrates. That was a strategy incidentally used by Alexander the Great. All he wanted to do was punch one little hole through one place where he could send his companions cavalry in and he'd take care of it from there. All the rest of the activity along that line was just to hold that line in place while he punched that one hole through. So that's how a smaller force can win against a bigger one. Because once they get behind and back and start start killing people from behind. And once people start screaming, they're behind us, they're behind us, it doesn't make any difference. The bigger they come, the harder they fall at that point, you know, the more panic there is. So those are the kinds of things that Boyd was saying, create confusion and exploit it before the other side can figure out what's going on. It sounds so easy, except that you're doing it with real life thinking human beings. A lot of times when I brief this stuff to martial artists, they say, you know, what's the big deal? That's exactly what we do. And I say, yeah, but you don't do it with armies of 100,000 people. That's the big, you don't do it with a company, you know, two or 3,000 people. That's the magic of the thing. Yeah. But you can see it's the idea of punch a hole through. Now, it's starting to sound like a pull kind of thing because once the hole gets there and people start going through, then the people behind them just start going into that hole. The commander can be in the back and not really understand what's going on for some period of time because there's a lot of confusion. And back in the old days, there was just a humongous amount of dust that obscured everything. Later, it was dust and black smoke from the gunpowder. But there's this pull type of effect of where once there is a breakthrough, then they start pulling in the units behind them, just naturally start pulling in behind them. And finally, the word gets back to the commander and he starts feeding resources in, but also doing some stuff on the flanks to keep them you know, out of the battle. But it takes very highly trained 
troops, troops that trust each other, troops that can make decisions right on the ground, because that initial breakthrough might be one squad, one corporal and 10 guys might be the thing that causes the initial breakthrough. Let's stay there for just a second, because this this is the most interesting part about your work and your work on top of Boyd's work. And both of your work on top of, I mean, I'll let you correct me on this too. I'm, I'm going to say Frederick the Great of Prussia being probably the innovator in developing the application of these principles in a meaningful way with a smaller outnumbered mm-hmm. force in a, I'll call it a hostile territory at that time in the 1700s. So the description here that I'm going to use is culture. And I'm going to use that because people in business know what what that means. And I think everybody knows what that means, but there's a sort of, sort of a culture that's super powerful when it comes to winning and to developing this kind of a strategy. So if, if I could get you to share, why do morale and leadership just tilt the playing field in your direction? And if you want to bring in Frederick the Great, and I'm going to ask you to talk about the principles of Blitzkrieg, and you can pronounce the German words that I can't, but I think I have the only blog on the internet that has finger spitzing before on the actual, in, written in a number of blog posts, one of the ugliest words ever, but yes, it is. A, an important word. So can you talk about morale and leadership and how that changes the equation? And I'm using the Lanchester model because I'm just thinking about, we always think it's more forces, it's more this, it's more that. And if I had more, then I would be able to do these things. But sometimes it's not more. It's what you're doing with what you already have. So can I lead you down that path? Well, let's go back to uh, Frederick the Great and the Battle of Leuthen, as I recall. I always confuse Leuthen and Lützen. I think Lützen was Gustavus Adolphus. Oddly enough, they they had a lot of the same kind of principles. Think of what he did there. The battle is more complicated than most people give it credit for, but there was action on Frederick's left flank that attracted the Austrians' attention. Meanwhile, he rolled his big guns up and blasted one of these small holes that we talked about over on the right flank and started streaming people through. Now, this was in the age of very linear tactics. Remember, you had the short-range muskets, and the idea was to get as much musket power going out as you could. And that called for people standing up firing in unison and reloading in unison and firing in unison and being able to do that more rapidly than the other side. Marksmanship wasn't a big deal because uh, you only fired out about effectively 80 yards anyway. And so Frederick said, you know, the key to all this is making your own men more afraid of their officers than they are of the enemy. And for that type of warfare, he was correct. But the way he actually won his battles was pure John Boyd. It was poke a hole through and exploit before the other side could figure it out. The same thing with with guys like the Duke of Wellington and then all the way up to the Germans in World War II, drawing on a tradition that went back to Alexander and before that, Epimandus of Thebes, who beat the Spartans with exactly that same principle, and on back to the dawn of recorded warfare. Smart generals didn't win these Lanchester-type equations because it's very easy to figure out who's going to win those things. So the question is, why does the smaller side just sit there and take it? But the smaller side can do clever things to get out of the Lanchester type thing. In other words, don't line up shoulder to shoulder and fight a bigger enemy. <laughs> fight a bigger enemy by being smart and going around him, going through him, moving aside when he starts to move, attack, attack him from behind. You know, it's all kind of stuff you can do if you can outthink and if you can get your organization then to carry out this outthinking plan. With Frederick, it tended to be pretty much top down. 
for a variety of reasons. For one thing, remember the way the German Prussian society was at that time. You had the aristocracy. They were kind of the executives, the officers. You had the middle class, which was kind of Frederick's baby, that produced the wealth of the country. And keeping those guys productive and happy was really the Schwerpunkt, to use a German word, of Prussian society. And then you had all those that weren't good for anything else. And those are the ones that Frederick molded into his fighting force. Same thing that the Duke of Wellington had done when he said we had the scum of the earth. But then he said, ah, but what we were able to do with them. And so that was the real key. And that's why Frederick's tactics of top down, you know, his management style was an adaptation to the era that he lived in. You know, we don't say, gee, you know, Frederick said, make your people more afraid of their managers than they are of the customer or the competitor. So that's how I'm going to manage. That don't work too well today where they can just get up and leave. You didn't get up and leave Frederick's army. That just wasn't done. They had ways of making sure that once you were in, you were in. So ways that companies can only dream about today. So you got to understand his basic principle, which was a cohesive force, that, but it still was capable of taking the initiative. And once the attack started, once Frederick ordered that attack on the right way, he kind of lost control for a while. It was down to his to his generals and even down to his lower ranking officers then to start pouring through as rapidly as they could and then fanning out in the back to cause the Austrian line to collapse. So that's the effect that we're going for nowadays. I try to summarize it as uh, fire up the creativity and initiative of everybody in your organization and harmonize it to accomplish the purposes of the organization. And by the way, that's an idea I got from retired Marine Colonel Mike Wiley, who said, yeah, all this boy stuff is really, really very simple. The more minds you have working on your problem, the more successful you'll be. And that's changed in business because it used to be we would hire you for your back, yeah. your hands, you know, and not your mind. But exactly. let, let me get to morale and leadership. And let me ask you to bring in the principles of Blitzkrieg. So like Ofstrog and Mission Command. Can you describe how those were used? And I, I'm going to put them under the principles of Blitzkrieg. Yeah, which is what Boyd originally called him. Yeah. But then he decided that that was not, I don't know, political. Boyd was not a politically correct kind of guy, but I think he, he wanted him to show it applied to different things. So he called them a organizational principles for operational success. Sounds nice uh, with that Blitzkrieg. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, but remember the basic idea is we want to get the most intelligences, the most gray matter in our organization working in a way to solve the problem. And lo and behold, once you make this happen, once you let this happen, once you create an environment where this happens, morale goes through the roof. Uh, you don't have to worry about morale at that point. Morale is going to skyrocket. Once people see that their creativity and their initiative is, is appreciated and is contributing to the success of the organization. What's the German word for this for unit cohesion? The word that Boyd used was Einheit, oneness, literally. He also translated it as a mutual trust cohesion. He also translated it as an overall mind-time-space scheme. So, you know, he was grappling with it. But the basic idea is that we work together as an organization, and there's kind of a boundary around us. The people inside we have Einheit with, the people outside may either be neutrals or maybe opponents. And he made a big distinction between those two. But the people inside are the ones that we fight and die for. Extremely powerful force. Think of World War One. The guys going over the top, 20,000, no, I'm sorry, 40,000. On July 1st, 1916, in the British Army, were either wounded, captured, or killed. And, of course, wounded meant out of, out of commission for, for quite a while back then and maybe, you know, good chance of being dead. So it was people got out of, you know, went over the top. 
into what was virtually certain, if not death, really good chance of being horribly maimed or captured. But they did it anyway. And they saw the people on both sides of them go down. In Civil War battles, you know, 25, 30% attrition was not unknown, which meant that if you were marching along, there's a real good chance that somebody on either side of you was going to go down. But you still kept marching into fire. In the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Pickett's Charge, as it's sometimes called, the lead unit in that, the Company A of the 11th Mississippi, Mississippi Grace from my school, Ole Miss, took 100% casualties, but they still kept coming. That's the power of Einheit. So it's amazing that companies aren't looking to, to exploit even a tiny fraction of that to help harmonize creativity and initiative. Let me try to tie that together, though, with the with the Ofstrom tactique. So this idea of mission command, and let me try to give it my interpretation because I don't have your depth in this field. It's sort of, I, I know what my outcomes are, and I know what the organization's outcomes are, and I know what everybody on every side of me, I know what their outcomes are. So should something happen... I don't have to ever wait for direction because I know what my outcome is. So in battle, if the commander's shot, I don't have to stop and wait for somebody else to tell me, now what are we supposed to do? I already know this is the, the mission. Keep going. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to comment on that. But I think that it's sort of this combination of leadership and this great trust, this safety net that Einheit or this culture produces for us. And then knowing what I'm supposed to be doing and being aware of what everybody else is doing, you start to get a powerful combination that lets organizations take initiative and lets individuals use their creativity and their resourcefulness to figure it out. Or I've heard it uh, referred to by friends in the Navy SEALs as FITFO or the Marines, which is their way of describing what they were charged with doing. So this gets us to an idea about fighting power. And I think that you might have mentioned to me that that was one of Boyd's favorite books by Van Creveld. And so you've got one side that's got Ofstrog Tactique or this uh, this mission command, and you've got the same side that has Einheit, and you're up against allies who don't yet have that in World War II. What difference does it make? And I think if you could just talk about Van Creveld's work and why it was so interesting to Boyd and looking at the equation here. It's very, because he he knew Van Crevel. They met a number of times when Van Crevel came to the States. Tremendous amount of respect for Van Crevel's work. And I would recommend Martin's stuff, by the way, to your leaders. He has a blog now, which you can Google and find. The idea is exactly what you said. The Marines talk about knowing what the mission is two levels up. One of the primary duties of any military leader is to ensure that if he or she goes out, that, as you say, the action continues. The, the next person in line immediately takes charge and continues to run the operation. Good units, which I think includes all of the Marine Corps and I'm pretty sure all of the uh, combat-driven army and all the special forces, certainly, they actually practice this. They'll be out on maneuvers and somebody, the commander or one of the referees, will point to the commander and say, you're dead, fall down. And the unit better continue right on or that commander gets a down check. So it isn't training your successor. It's training the unit to operate regardless of how it. Uh... So everybody's got to know what the mission is and they've got to know what their spot in the mission is. Are they the schwerpunkt? Are they the unit that's going to try to affect this penetration through the line? Or are they part of the rest of the organization, which is creating confusion and trying to hold the rest of the enemy in place and deceive them about where we're going to try to break through and all that kind of good stuff. And knowing that, even if the commander goes down, they sort of know what to do. For example, if you're one of the units that's supposed to be keeping as many enemy units away from the main 
breakthrough point as it can, then even if you see the line start to thin out in front of you, you don't go charging right in. You try to make a lot of noise. You may go forward a little bit, try to shoot people. You may do whatever you can, but your function is to suck enemy units in your direction. So you act differently than if your function is to try to break through and exploit. Everybody in the unit needs to know that. So that even if there's only two or three people left in the unit, they can still continue to act in the way that they think and their understanding would suck the most enemy forces into their area and therefore keep them away from where the breakthrough is going. You see, it's a pretty simple concept all in uh, all. In all. And you can also see there's just not enough time to try to go back for orders, even if you could get communications through. Van Crevelds, though, he does a mathematical analysis of World War II battle by battle. And I, I'm going to share what I remember of this, and you can correct me here too. If the German soldiers were up against the Allied soldiers, they were worth two, two and a half, right? Two and a half to one. She's using Trevor Dupuis' calculations then. Uh, Boyd, by the way, didn't go along with that at all. He said, yeah, it's probably true, but those are attrition-oriented numbers. Yep. Because again, you can have a thousand troops, but if I can get a hundred that break through at the right place and cause your thousand to panic, now yeah, who cares? Win. Yeah, exactly. And all you have to do is break through in one one tiny spot. The point, though, I think, is that the unit cohesion, the morale, the culture, Einheit, all of these ideas made a German soldier more effective generally because they were already at mission command coming out of the Prussian system and that they, they already knew how to behave in a way that gave them an advantage in a military situation. That's quite true, but I think it might be easier if you look at it in terms of the German unit because that's how the Germans looked at it. A German unit would be expected to engage and carry out its mission against an allied unit two or three times its size. Later in the war, it became even, even more than that. It's a very famous comment from General Balk, who was one of Boyd's favorites. Boyd actually interviewed him a couple of times after the war in 1980. And there was a, uh, late in the war, he got into a situation and Boyd said, well, what did you do? And Balk said, well, you know, he said, I didn't have enough troops to defend, so I had to attack. So, but that follows logically from what we've just been talking about here. You create more confusion by these little poke through kind of things and getting the other side to to react, to react back. Yeah. yeah, the best German units were trained to do that, and they were expected to do that. But it wasn't Bach sitting up on the top saying, "You go here, you go there, you go there." He made sure everybody understood that that was his plan, and then his subordinate leaders, because of their experience and his knowledge of how Bach worked, then in their sectors, they decided how to carry it out, and it flowed down all the way down to the individual squads. By the way, it's exactly the same concept in the Toyota production system for those of you that from that called Hoshin Connery, the flow down of intent. So that's what got me into this was I started seeing the same cultural artifacts we're talking about in Toyota that I'd seen in the Germans, but no sign at all of any communications between them. So This is the day that we lost Muhammad Ali, and so it's yes. appropriate to talk about asymmetric fast transit. Describe that for me and tie that together if you can. Yeah, that was Boyd's original idea it's a, it's, it's, from that NASA paper I told you about. A faint? Uh, a transient is just a change. And he was thinking, originally, he was thinking about the ability to turn, climb, or accelerate, which defines maneuverability. But he got thinking, even in that paper, there was more to it than that. It was really the ability to somehow change the whole situation faster than the other side could handle. 
Remember, he said, he who can handle the fastest rate of change wins. The rate of change is, is the fast transit. My being able to handle it better than you is the asymmetric part. So if I can get the pot boiling and I can start changing things more rapidly than your brain can handle, then your morale, your orientation, your cohesion within your unit, if it's an individual yourself, your ability to even function will completely go to pieces. And I think Muhammad Ali intuitively understood that with this float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Sort of, I, I, think. I think about the picture of him, and I think it might be Sonny Liston swinging on him, and he's missing yeah. him completely. And Ali was there, but by the time Liston threw the punch, Ali was already gone. I mean, and you can and see at, him, he's leaning yeah. way back out of the way. Yeah, and after a while, Liston had to get frustrated and start doing things, start taking chances, start doing things that you know he knew he shouldn't do. And once that happened, then Ali had the opening to, to engage him in a more, uh, more conventional way. Knock him out. Yeah, but see, he couldn't do that until he had Liston's mental state completely destroyed. He had Liston now starting to lash out, starting to make mistakes. Then he could exploit those mistakes. And that's, it's, it's the same thing uh, in warfare, except you just do it with 100,000 people. Yeah, a little bit more complicated of a problem. Yeah. Let me take us into OODA loops now. And, sure. And this is what Boyd is known for. And I'm going to ask you to... Describe an OODA loop, and you can tie all of this stuff together. And for people who, there's a lot of people who are unfamiliar. If you're not in the military, anybody who's in the military, if I even mention OODA loops, they know immediately what I'm They've at least, they've at least heard of it. The idea Particularly the Marines. Came, yeah, they, oh, yeah. yeah. And it's part of special operations doctrine, too. If you read SEAL stuff about the SEALs, they, they talk about the OODA loop. They talk about boy. It originally came from his idea of a fighter pilot, of you know, turning inside the other side. And if you could see what the other side was getting ready to do and... So if you saw him getting ready to roll out a turn and go the other direction, and you could go more quickly than you could be there waiting for him when he came uh, around. So that kind of got him started originally observe, then orient, then decide, and then act. But when he thought about it more deeply, it wasn't quite that simple. The real key to it was the understanding, the figuring out what the other side was going to do. And then from that point in a fast breaking battle, you better already have a response ready to go. And your mind should basically already be telling you this is the right one to do. And that comes from years of experience and, and training. So that's why when Boyd drew his final loop figure, he put orientation right in the middle of it, big square right in the middle. Your orientation is your mental model of the world. And basically what it's doing is it's making predictions. By the way, there's some interesting physiology now that we have functional MRI going on, seeing what lights up, that's confirming that that's pretty much how your brain works. Your brain essentially makes predictions. When things conform to that prediction, parts of your brain work differently than when they don't conform to that prediction. And incidentally, when they don't conform to the prediction, things like the amygdala group, which controls things like fear, anxiety, and panic, just like Boyd predicted, began to become very active. That's just an aside. So you got orientation right in the middle. That's your model of the world making predictions, which include what's going to happen? How is the other side going to react if I do this? You don't have time to run a bunch of alternatives. Not Somehow your brain says, do that. And you do it. And it may be just to keep the pot boiling for a while. You just keep floating like a butterfly. Knowing that you're having effect on Liston's mind, you may not be sure exactly what's going to get him, but just keep it floating. Keep making him more frustrated. So your orientation is just, is just once your orientation, once your mental model says, aha, He's going to make a big swing now, and I can, I can now, while his arm is coming around, now I can exploit. 
Ali didn't have a bunch of alternatives and say, well, I don't know, there's a 25% chance of this, 30%. It was he just immediately knew that that was going to happen. His orientation told him. Is that finger Spitzenkafool? That's it in a nutshell. It's exactly right. Orientation combined with your intuition and what, what I call situational knowledge. You've seen situational awareness. You exactly. don't know what you've seen, but from a martial artist standpoint, I mean, the, the exactly. thing is you're responding without thinking about it. Yeah, if you get everybody in your organization responding in, in a way that then accomplishes the objectives of your organization, you're basically now running a board type organization. And it's the function of higher management then to make sure you have the right culture, to keep it going and to feed in resources you know, from outside the organization where they're needed. But the actual Actual work is done by the actual workers, just like the actual fighting was done by the actual soldiers. But yeah, that's it in a nutshell. So that's the other loop. The only other part about it is how do you build that finger spits and gifu? How do you program your orientation to know what to do? And that's the observe, then orient, then decide and act loop. That sequential loop of trying things and seeing what happens and trying and see. And that's why exercises are so important. And that's why a free play is so important. And that's why experience and actual combat or actual business is so important. By the way, it also explains why so many CEOs that transfer in from outside the industry tend to crash and burn, quite often taking their company with them. They don't have the finger spits and get through for that particular industry. But yeah, that's it. So you have this circular process of building your, your orientation of learning, and then you have this rapid fire process of actually using your orientation then when you're engaged. And the Boyd's OODA Loop diagram shows both of those. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Do you call him the American Sun Tzu? I've seen him <laughs> referred to that way. Is that on one of your decks or is it somewhere else? It, saw that? it might be. I think actually Coram. I called him more the American Musashi, you know, the, mm. the gunfighter, the sword fighter, side to side. I don't know. He was, you know, in a sense like like the Buddha, the Buddha said, don't believe something just because I told it to you. Go out and experience it for yourself. That was a very much Boyd's philosophy. Here's what I've seen. Take this, go out and do your own thing. And then, build, as he said, build your own snowmobile, build your own synthesis based on you know what you've seen that, you know, that works for you. Here's some ideas I found that work for me. You may find them interesting, but you, know, you need to do your own thing. Is the application of Boyd's strategy and his thinking to run an OODA loop faster than your opponent can run an OODA loop? So it basically so- means learn, learn faster than your opponent can learn. And then when you see an opening, be able to, I mean, Exploit it. yeah, if, if Ali had known that Liston, he just sensed that Liston was getting ready to overextend himself. If he didn't have something ready to use without even thinking about it, wouldn't have done him any good. You know, so his orientation told him, Hey, something's getting ready to happen now. But it also then his training allowed him then to go through that implicit guidance and control and actually carry out an action that was effective. To have that kind of a learning organization, how much of that, in your opinion, in your view, is dependent upon the cultural safety net, the Einheit, the trust, the cohesion, Ofstrog, all of that? Is, is that what enables the OODA loop to be so effective? Oh, absolutely. I would say 100% of it, because without that, you're not going to have any learning. You'll have CYA. People will be learning, but they'll be learning how to protect themselves in a corporate environment. A very good book, Leadership BS by Jeffrey Pfeffer on that, by the way, I recommend to your to your readers. We're going to get into uh, books in just a minute, because I'm going to ask you about books. Okay. Uh, you're very well read. Before we do, though, I want to ask about your book. If you could sum up Certain to Win 
And I didn't reread the whole book. I reread a lot of my notes preparing for this. And now I'm going to go back and reread the whole thing for a third time, because what you've written is so powerful of a recipe. But for people, first off, I'm going to tell them, go buy the book, and we'll have a link there on the show notes so we can send people to find this. But if you could sum it up in a couple short directives to say, if you're in business and you are in a competitive situation, because that's the nature of business, what should you think about when you think about strategy? If you could just boil that down to the essence for you. Okay. I, it, I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Get the most gray matter working in service of your business that you can. And it's your job to decide what in service of your business means. And that's why it's very important that you have clarity so people know what to do, not only when they come in in the morning, but when they're thinking about it on the way to work or their brains are working uh, at night, you know, in the background. What is it? Are we going for lowest cost? Are we going for new features that absolutely blow the customer away? How are we going to do this in the competitive environment we're in? And you need to decide, you know, which direction are we going to go in all of this? And then at that point, then it's your job to keep bubbling along. And that's where ideas like the military Ostrog tactic may be useful if you can get that level of Einheit, if that Einheit going. And I think the good news is most businesses not only don't think about running this way, they don't want to think about running this way. What they really want to do is produce the most financial return for their highest stakeholders. And the implicit bargain being, if you stay with the company long enough, you can become one of these implicit stakeholders yourself, or you'll get some good punches in your resume and you can go off and eventually start your own business. And those are quite legitimate. I'm not saying we, wrong. We, we get it backwards. I mean, great sh- exactly. shareholder value comes after you've taken care of customers. And the people that take care of the customers are the ones that create the value for them. So that's shareholder value ultimately, right? And as long as you're honest with everybody about it, there's no problem. And we'll talk about books in a minute, but that's the big thing. A CEO will come in, they'll make three, 400 times what the average salary difference is. When they run the business into the ground, they'll pull the golden parachute and leave. By the way, do you know what the ratio between top military pay and average military pay is? It's about, as I say, between two and 300 with the Fortune 500, depending on. I'm going to say 15. You're very close. It's about five or six. It would be six. It would be 15 if Congress would remove the, the pay caps. There are pay caps for the very senior people. Yeah, the very senior type, technically, it's about 21,000 a month for the most senior military if they got everything they were supposed to get. And it's about 3,000 a month, 3,500 for uh, average NCO. Even for the cheap, for the most junior person, it's 1,500 a month. And by the way, they throw in housing, food, and clothing on top of that. So yeah, these are people who go out, live in the booties, and get shot at, and you know, get covered with dirt and all kind of stuff for days and weeks at a time. So as you can see, the military culture, to apply military concepts to the civilian culture, again, you need to develop a deep understanding of them and then try to apply it and don't just try to mimic what the military is doing. Yeah. I, and I think the military analogies to business are useful, but they're limited. And in a, a lot of ways, you're not competing head to head with a competitor. Again, it is about the mind share that you want from the customer and eventually their wallet share. Tell me, what are you reading right now? It's interesting. I primarily read fiction because I find that the first is more fun, but 
the insights into human behavior. That's what a good novelist is basically interested in. As Faulkner said, the human soul in conflict with itself. Well, that's kind of what you're trying to trying to do here, uh, simply trying to do it to the other guy. I also like, for example, series like The Sopranos. I kid with my wife and I say, you know, everything that I know about business, I learned from The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliantly written and acted series. Are, you, just a, a are you watching of Game of Thrones? No, it hadn't come up on Amazon Prime yet. We don't get HBO or Netflix. So, you, you, uh, you will, if you like The Sopranos, you're going to like this. That's what everybody uh, says. That's what everybody says. I like Rome also, by the way. Rome a lot of good, great. A lot of good insights there, too. It's better than Rome, and I loved Rome, but I, I'll just tell you, my warning to you is don't fall in love with any characters in Game of Thrones. So, oh, okay. It's, it's very different than The Sopranos in that way. It sort of reminds me of the latest uh, Quentin Tarantino movie, Hateful Eight. Yeah. On the nonfiction side, a couple of them I would recommend to your listeners. As I said, Jeffrey Pfeffer's Leadership BS. The only thing I would fault him a little bit on is it's okay for the CEO to make three, four hundred times what the average person makes, so long as, as he's not lying to the rest of the organization about it. And then if the people want to sign up uh, and work for a company like that, you know, thinking maybe someday they'll get there or they'll become a CEO of a different company, you know, fine. It's when they say, you know, hey, come work hard for us and you're going to invest in your stock uh, options. And one of these days, yeah, we're not paying you much now, but one of these days, no, you'll be, you'll be worth all this money. And then they declare bankruptcy, knowing full well that that's what they were going to do. And they pull their golden parachutes and leave. You know, that's when you begin, I think, to get a little bit upset about An- the whole thing. Anti-Einheit behavior. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We could have a long discussion about what value creation means and whether it exists yeah. just on a balance sheet and trading derivatives or whether there actually has yeah. to be a customer customer who receives any value. But it, I would good. say it's an interesting time that we live in when you start thinking about concepts like Einheit and how you create a really sustainable culture of greatness versus a culture that can transact in the way that some of our organizations do now. What's the most important book you've read and why? Lord, there's so many. You know, outside of the Boyd stuff, of course, that's a really tough one. But see, Boyd, Boyd didn't write any books. Well, he did, just because he didn't publish them through a, somebody that you know. And but if, They're mostly slide decks and papers, well, right? Well, if you looked at Sun Tzu recently, you know, what's, how is Sun Tzu? It's a collection. Yes. He deliberately imitated the Sun Tzu style of pithy little things to try to get you to think a little bit. But the only thing, the only paper he wrote was Destruction and Creation. You know, you spent your entire life trying to, to decipher that thing. I have. Yeah. But like he said, you know, what he didn't really want to see was copies of his book and the remainder you know, section at Barnes and Noble, which is probably where they would have ended up. I will recommend another book for your readers, and that's Stephen Bungay's Art of Action. Now, it's Great very, book. very military oriented, though. But that is how Aftra works. But just remember that we're talking the Prussian and then the German military. And they had tremendous ways of creating Einheit that most businesses don't. And again, you know, they did not have huge salaries as an inducement. Along that same line, Turn the Ship Around is another good book about. But again, you know, they're trapped on a submarine for two years and they're in the Navy uh, on top of all of that. So they can create tremendous Einheit. But there are some interesting ideas in that book. Going back into novels, again, which I get a lot of insight from, Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, again, very kind of a very difficult book to read, but if you just pick it up and read it like a novel, it's, it's really pretty simple. But a lot of interesting things happen in that book, and you can ask yourself why, you know, what's really going on? Why do people behave in the way they're behaving? And that's a very rich, 
very rich book. Very good at that. Do you watch The Walking Dead? No. You'd like that one too. It's not really about zombies. It's really about how people behave uh, when when it's uh, the end of the world as we know it. And any of the books on the Toyota production system, Jeffrey Licker's Toyota Way is quite good. Uh, George Stock and Tom Houts competing against time are good ones. These are not books that I, I come back to and and read a lot. They're very good. There's a lot of good ideas in them. I think if, if we're here and we have to talk about Robert Coram, which you mentioned at the beginning, that book on Boyd is oh, yeah. great, as well as the one that he did on Bud Day. That's an exceptionally well-written and a great story. What about Mind of War? It's, oh. not, it's, yeah, it's another good book. I was interviewed for that one also. I think I appeared at a couple of places. Uh, Strategy of War, Franz Ozinga's book. Kind of difficult to read, but if you read several different, they all come at it from a different angle. So I recommend them all but for understanding who Boyd was and why he did what he did and how he came up with it. You can't beat Cora. That's what Robert was writing about. He has a new book out, uh, we're coming out shortly, a biography of Robert Scott, the guy best known for God is My Co-Pilot. I actually met Scott up until just before he died. He was running the Air Museum down at Air Robbins Air Force Base. It's a great museum if you ever happen to be traveling down I-75, by the way. One other good book. It's a little off the subject, but since we brought it up initially, uh, Shunryun Suzuki, Zen Mind, Beginner Mind. I don't think, no Simon Boyd ever read that particular book. He did read several in that genre. You know, Alan Watts, for example, uh, stuff. I, I've read that three times this year. Oh, yeah, exactly. So you and me both. That's, that's just a superb Easy to read, but every time you read it, you get more ideas. And like I, you have, say, I have less sections highlighted, you know, that have no yeah. highlights than highlights. Exactly. And, and each one of those you could spend hours contemplating. Exactly. To me, that's a great book. And yeah, I read it, reread it. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I do the same way. Somehow or another, piercing got touched somehow or another by something. You've just produced a brilliant, brilliant book. I think that he's an antenna. I think that the the people that write that, they're an antenna and it just comes through them. They get the whole insight all at once and it pours out. I think out. you're right. And it just it just pours out. I like Lila too, but it just didn't hit me like Zen of the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, it's another book I reread every three or four years just because it just seems like you know, I always get something out of it every time I do. Which book is that? Zen of the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert M. Piercing's book. Uh, tell me, what's the most important lesson you've learned in your life? I'm now talking to a guy who is a yogi. Oh, Lord. Well, I mean, you can't beat the title of uh, Suzuki's book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. The most important thing is to keep your original beginner's mind, uh, which to keep your orientation working. Don't don't take anything, of course, including yourself, too seriously. When I've caused myself problems, it's it's been what I've had. I've become attached to things. There's an article in The Current Guardian, by the way, if your readers are interested, and it's called Facing My Fear. I used yoga to cope, and then an injury took away my life. She's getting all this good stuff out of yoga, relaxation and insight and all of that. Then she, her, her teacher said, well, you ought to challenge yourself. you know." And so she does, and she almost makes herself a paraplegic. She becomes attached to this idea of staying in a headstand longer and longer. Why? Nobody, but she becomes attached to it. And it damn near ruins her life. She's finally working her way back. So I think that idea of you're going to become attached to things, but then understand that you are becoming attached to them and take whatever things you think are appropriate at that time. Extremely important. Kind. Every time I've really screwed up big time, I think it's been when I've, I've violated that. So, have you, have you ever read Ken Wilber's work? 
I don't believe so. What were some of the things that he... That he Sex, psychology, and spirituality. I'll send you some links for him. I think... That okay, be, maybe. Uh, no, I haven't. If you read that, it's about 900 pages. But wow. if you read that, it's sort of an understanding of how cultures evolve in different states and levels and types. Good. And it's one of the best frameworks I've ever seen for understanding everything. It's really a theory of everything. If you read that, I'll bring you back on just so you can explain it to me through your lens, which would be interesting. <laughs> if you weren't speaking, consulting, doing the things that you do, what would you be doing instead? Well, you got to remember, I'm 69. In theory, I'm, I'm retired, which uh, I defied the ginger as saying, it. I'm not out looking for new business, but if it finds me, I'll consider it. So I was out in San Diego with the uh, Lean Kanban, which is doing some very interesting work, implying actual lean concepts to the problem of software development. And they really have done, I think, a good job of trying to develop a deeper understanding, not just aping the Toyota production system, but really trying to understand this stuff and then come up with applications. So I go out and talk to them about Boyd kind of stuff, and it's a lot of fun. But uh, my next thing is coming up. I'm going to try to do the Buford River swim next weekend, 3.2 miles. And then I've got a swim meet next weekend, uh, long course meters, where I'll swim a mile, 1,650 yards, 1,500 meters, which is not quite a mile, of course. So I'm getting more involved in things like that. I'm trying to finish my advanced yoga certification, the 500-hour certification. I hope to have that done sometime later this year. As soon as Ginger's foot heals from a foot surgery two years ago, we're having the hardware taken out Tuesday. We intend to travel some. So, you know, basically, I figure I'm at the part of my life now where I can literally do whatever I want. The trick is just figuring out what that is at any given at any given time. So I live in an over 55 community, which we have 73 clubs. We have 91 miles of roads and trails behind our gates. We have active bicycle club, uh, running club, which I'm currently the president of, swim team, croquet, badminton, tennis, pickleball, all kinds of card games, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What about your, your favorite pastime, beer drinking? I love that. The only problem is I'm down now to, I'm getting under one beer a night. I've learned what a session beer is. And South Carolina just finally changed their law not too long ago to where we can have some good craft breweries in our immediate area. Otherwise, the delightful little city of Savannah is only 45 minutes away. The beach at Hilton Head's about uh, the same distance and Duford, which is where Pat Conroy recently died and where he and his father are buried is about 45 minutes to the north. So and I recommend all those places to your to your listeners if they're looking for a quick getaway on the East Coast. What do you hope to be remembered for? I don't know that I hope to be remembered. That's a very good question. I hope certain to win, of course, helps helps people, helps reduce the friction in their own organizations, helps them and their organizations accomplish what they feel they want to accomplish. The more I get into yoga, the more I'm convinced that board really is the yoga of, I hate to use the term conflict, but yoga maybe of competition, yoga of accomplishing what you want to accomplish when there are other people that you may bump into trying to do the same sorts of things. The Bhagavad Gita talks about 19 different kinds of yoga. So, I mean, there's room for a 20th as far as I'm concerned. Life is really cooperation, collaboration, and conflict. I mean, and, yeah. and it's all one thing if you take it from a Zen. Exactly. A simple, it's just one, one thing. One of the things about The Sopranos, you may remember when Michael is being made there and he's talking about you're now a family and we look after you, but we come before your wife, your kids, anybody else. That is Einheit. And of course, the penalty for violating it was to get shoved in the trunk of a car. This happens fairly often in that series. This does not end well. No, this, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time and all your thank, insight and wisdom. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Best of luck in your endeavors. Thank and you. I hope to talk to you again soon. 
That was my friend Chet Richards, and I want to point you someplace special to find Chet's work. It's lkce15.com, and you're going to find a number of videos there from Chet, and essentially you're going to get him giving speeches in a couple different areas where you're going to get a deeper understanding into all this content. I also want to point you to his book, Certain to Win. There'll be a link in the show notes so that you can pick that book up. If you care at all about strategy, this book is going to help you tremendously. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I publish daily. When you go there, do sign up for the newsletter. It's my best work every Sunday directly to your inbox so that you can apply that work to what you do Monday morning. Also visit me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And I also want to point you to one new resource I have at howtoplanasalescall.com. When you go there, do sign up for the content. You'll give me your first name and your email address and you will immediately be rushed off to a series of four videos that you can use to plan a sales call. And I promise this will help you get the outcomes you need on a sales call and the workbook's there for you to fill out as well. I'm Anthony Anarino. Thanks for joining me here. Do leave me a review on iTunes. Give me a rating. Give me a comment. I really would appreciate that. And I will look forward to seeing you back here next time in the arena. This episode of In the Arena was sponsored by Sales Gravy University. You know I'm good friends with Jeb Blunt, and you know he does great work, and you know he wrote Fanatical Prospecting, but you may not know that he created Sales Gravy University. And what is Sales Gravy University, you ask? And it's a great question. Sales Gravy University is sales training in your pocket. What you're going to get is an innovative training app that's going to help you accelerate your sales performance and improve your income, and it's in your pocket. It's on your phone, whether that's an iPhone or an Android phone. You can go out to the iTunes store and download the app, or you can go to the Play Store and download the app there. Here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the platform when you sign up, and you're going to be able to buy what you want. There's going to be in-app purchases there for you. You can purchase some courses for 99 cents. And that might be a short video, a tutorial, or an audio program. You're also going to find something that costs more. I think I have a program on there for $9.99. And it's how to plan a sales call. It's four modules. It's probably close to 25 minutes long. And it's content to help you set up success when you're going to do the most important thing that salespeople do, and that's go sit down face-to-face with a client or a prospect. Here's what I love about this platform, and this is where I think Jeb's genius comes in. This is spot training. So you're in your car. You've got a problem. You're going to go out. You're going to watch a video. You're going to read a tutorial, or you're going to listen to an audio track, and you're going to come up with the ideas that you need to succeed when you're sitting down with that customer. Or maybe this is part of your personal development and your growth, and you're going to listen to one module every week, and you're going to work on that module, and then the next week you're going to pick up something else and grow from there. Go check out Sales Gravy University. You can Google it, and you'll come up with the iTunes preview as the second link. You'll also find the link in the show notes or go out to the Play Store and search for Sales Gravy. I promise there's nothing else in the world called Sales Gravy and only a Southerner like Jeb Blunt who rides horses and eats steak and probably drinks whiskey is going to call something Sales Gravy because to a Southerner, nothing is real unless you can put gravy on it. Go check it out. When you get there, tell Jeb that I sent you and do check out the sales call planning module there. I think you'll love it and I think that you're going to find it super helpful when you go in to make a sales call.
Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.